Sustainability isn't just something that's good for our planet. It's important for our health, too. When it comes to sustainable fashion, our decisions affect the global ecosystem, people all around the world, and our own selves. That's why we were shocked after talking with today's guest to learn just how close to home some of these challenges are for all of us. Literally inside our own closets. Join us for today's conversation and learn about sustainable fashion, which is vital to understanding your options for better, healthier living. Welcome to the Be Social Change podcast, your go-to resource for weekly personal professional development to help you build a successful social impact career. I'm Marco Salazar. And I'm Jen Lashansky, and we're the team behind Be Social Change. Over the past decade, we've helped tens of thousands of professionals and entrepreneurs grow their social impact careers, and we're excited to help you do the same. In the podcast, you'll learn new skills and strategies from inspiring social impact leaders who have built careers at socially conscious companies, innovative nonprofits, and within government. We're so happy you found this podcast and look forward to helping you build a meaningful, fulfilling, and successful social impact career. Let's get into it. Sustainable fashion is so many people's initial path into sustainability because, well, all of us wear clothes. And so many people have been aided by the work of our guest this week. Our amazing guest is a leading expert in the field and is also an incredible entrepreneur, freelancer, and speaker. She has led an amazing career researching, writing about, and disclosing vital information about fashion trends that may literally be killing us. Alden Wicker is the founder of EcoCult, one of the original sustainable fashion blogs and the author of To Die, D-Y-E for How Toxic Fashion is Making Us Sick. Her freelance social impact career is a great example for many people who choose to find their own paths to be social change in the world. Let's dive in, Jen. Hey, Eldon. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's been so long since we've connected, and I know there's been a lot of things that have happened since you ended up speaking at a peace social change event. You've written a book. You've been doing some amazing writing. And I think we'll just start there. Love to hear a little bit about the new book that's about to come out. Yeah. So the book is called To Die For, How Toxic Fashion is Making Us Sick and How We Can Fight Back. And it's looking into something that is very undercovered. When I first looked into it, I thought there surely is nothing there because somebody would have written about it or discovered it. And it turns out there was something there and nobody had really dived into it. So basically, it's looking at the chemicals that are used on all types of fashion and they're linked to a whole host of ailments. So cancer is one of them. But also you have sort of quality of life things like autoimmune disease, eczema, fertility issues, just all sorts of things that are linked to the types of chemicals that are on our fashion, how they got there and what we can do about getting them out of our clothing. Wow. How did you get interested in that? What was your pathway to learning about the area? Yeah, so I've been writing about sustainable fashion for pretty much as long as Be Social Change has been in existence. But I think it was 2018 when a radio show contacted me and they said, hey, Delta airline attendants are suing the airline as well as the maker of their uniforms. And can you come on the radio show and can you comment about it? And I told them, no, I can't comment about it because because I have no idea what they're talking about. I had never heard about getting sick from your clothing before. Like we all talk about food and we talk about personal care and beauty products, cleaning products, but clothing was totally off my radar. 
And I don't tend to talk about things I don't know about. So I declined, but then I started, I was just like really curious about it. And so I ended up writing an article about it for Harper's Bazaar, but I really just brushed the surface. And as I heard about the stories of these flight attendants, I realized, oh, this is like way too serious and way too deep to just put in a short article in a fashion magazine. Like this is serious business. And so I ended up pitching a book about the whole topic. And the book starts with the airline attendants and what they went through. Like some of them lost their hair. They were disabled by chemicals. They lost their jobs. They lost their income. They lost their livelihood. They lost their homes. All of these different things. But they're really just the canaries in the coal mine for the rest of us due to a variety of factors. But there's been this big cover-up of chemicals and fashion for more than 100 years. And so the book traces all of that and then call for overhauling the way we use clothing and what we put on clothing. Wow. We're in this also weird full circle moment, too, where Delta Airlines has been in the news this month, too. They're being sued for not being carbon neutral, despite what they claim to be as an Mm. airline. So it's interesting. It's like a full circle moment. I was wondering if you could share just a little bit more about what it was like to write the book and to do the research and to get all the information that, as you said, hasn't been sufficiently covered before. Yeah, it was really difficult. First of all, I did not take organic chemistry in college. So (laughs) there was like, at the beginning, I would have to ask very stupid questions. But yeah, I basically had to have this crash course in chemistry and it was ambitious (laughs) taking this on. But luckily I had a year and a half to really dig into it and understand. Some of the difficulties were just finding somebody who could talk to me about it, who isn't in some way paid by the fashion industry or the chemical industry to do their jobs. And even if they don't believe they're biased, like if the fashion industry or fashion brands are your client, like you're going to end up serving their interests. So It was really difficult to find people who are unbiased, especially because a lot of researchers, they're not studying this issue. There's definitely this bias against fashion as this frivolous, unserious topic that doesn't deserve the attention or money from a grant to do research. So at the very beginning, there were some researchers who would just be like, I don't know anything about this. And luckily, I came back around to them. And one of them, Heather Stapleton at Duke, she was like, oh, actually, I'm so glad you came back. We just finished this huge research project on azobenzene disperse dyes, which are the kind of dyes used in polyester and how they're skin sensitizers and how they're in all of our homes dust. So we're like breathing them in and ingesting them. So you could count on one hand the number of people in the world who really, truly understand even part of what's going on and have not signed some sort of non-disclosure agreement and that could talk to me about it. So there was a lot of sleuthing that went into this and travel. I ended up going to India, visiting some dye houses and factories there, interviewing garment workers there, and just trying to find people who could trace their problems back to fashion. So. It was a lot of work, but it was really gratifying. And I want to really get into that investigative reporting and all the things that you need to do in order to be a good writer in the social impact space. But I think what you've written is just so important. You're reminding me of a conversation I recently had with a friend who was only wanting to wear certain types of clothing because of what you described. We tend to think about things that negatively impact our health that we're ingesting, but not necessarily what we're wearing. So I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into the book. So what's the state? of removing these chemicals, of not using them? What can consumers do? Like, where do we go from here? And I know probably your book helps readers go down that path. Yeah. So one thing that you don't really think about, but is crazy, is unlike all the other consumer products that I named, beauty, personal care, cleaning, food, fashion does not come with an ingredient list. 
It will tell you wow. the fabric, right? So it could say 100% cotton. That does not include the polyester stitching. It doesn't include all of the different finishes and chemicals that were put on it, then stripped off it with other chemicals, then dyed, then put back on at the end for performance. So it doesn't include any of that. So even if you're concerned, even if you know you have an allergy, right? Even if you've gone into your dermatologist and they've given you what's called a patch test where they put all this different stuff on your back and then see if you have a reaction. Even if you've gotten a little sheet that says, oh, you're allergic to nickel and you're allergic to dispersed dye blue 47 or whatever it is, or you're allergic to chromium or like whatever, or certain other chemicals, what are you going to do about it? Like a lot of women that I talk to who have serious allergies and chemical intolerances, they just only shop at stores that have really good return policies because they like put it on and then they need to wait for three or four days to see what pops up and then return it. So that's where we are right now, especially because most clothing now is made in other countries that have a much more lax standards for both environmental health, worker health, and then what can be on clothing. We're like re-importing all of those effects that we exported to those countries. And then finally, in the United States, the EU is a little bit better. But in the United States, there are no federal laws governing what you can put on clothing and sell to adult consumers. There's four chemicals that you can't have on children's products. California has labeling requirements. So if you have certain things, you have to label it. I think Maine has some stuff like Maine and New York have passed stuff against perfluorinated chemistry, which is like the Teflon stain resistant stuff for forever chemicals. But at the federal level, like if something's getting shipped into Newark, New Jersey, and it's an adult product from a brand that you recognize, there's no reason for customs to like even open the box and take a sniff of it, right? Like it's not part of their job. Nobody's told them to do that. So you could ship a box full of razor blades out to somebody. You could ship something with chlordane, which is what happened to the American airline attendants, which is one of the few chemicals that was completely banned for manufacturing use in the United States in the 80s. You could put it on a piece of clothing, sell it to somebody in the States, and you've done nothing illegal whatsoever, even though it's carcinogenic and incredibly toxic. So that's where we are right now. I can stop there and then I can get into a little bit of where we should go. It's really helpful to hear where we should go. I've never been so aware of what I'm wearing. <laughs> yeah, and I think, but I was wondering what can consumers do right now? Yeah, so there's some kind of guidance. They're not steadfast rules, right? Because like I said, like a 100% cotton t-shirt can't have stuff on it. But there are ways to avoid some of these things largely. Well, first of all, let me couch this by saying if you and your family are in perfect health, and nothing is wrong at all, and this is stressing you out, don't worry about it. Don't let me pile more on you. But I think if you're someone who have kids, you're trying to get pregnant, you have skin issues, you're in remission from cancer, all these different things, don't discount fashion. So what I would suggest people who are in one of those situations do, go for natural fibers, something that's 96% or 95% or above natural fibers like cotton, linen, silk, merino wool, wool, whatever, all those different things. I would say avoid scented laundry products at all costs. These can be incredibly toxic. They can also off-gas all this stuff, this hot air with a lot of toxicity into your home's air. They attach to your clothing. It stays forever. So you should avoid those things. Get unscented, non-toxic laundry products. 
you should definitely avoid anything that has performance promises in its marketing, right? Stay improved, stay away. Try to stay away from anything waterproof. Unless you're climbing Mount Everest or you're a national fisherman, you do not need waterproofing on your stuff. There are some outdoor brands that are now using alternatives to perfluorinated chemicals, rubber chemicals in their stuff. I've listed them on EcoCol. People can just Google PFAS free. So you want to avoid any of those performance products. Wrinkle free, avoid that. Basically, if anything, or odor proof, anti-odor, antibacterial, anything that's, hey, this does more than what you would expect from a piece of fabric, avoid it. Now, I will caveat that by saying a lot of brands make claims about their bamboo rayon or like whatever being antibacterial, which I don't think is really true. Don't stay away from those because of that claim. But if it's saying, hey, we have this proprietary copyright R after it material with all of these properties, I would avoid it. That's great to hear. And we'll definitely direct people to EcoCult for that information. So that's in terms of altering our purchasing behavior, being more mindful yeah. when we're purchasing. Are there other ways that consumers or even organizations can help this challenge or help resolve this through an advocacy standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. So we're starting to see legislation. Like I said, New York, Maine, New York and California specifically have both passed laws governing the use of perfluorinated chemistry in everyday apparel. And that's amazing. If you don't live in one of those states, I would say get involved in advocacy to get your state lawmakers to do something similar. And again, it's everyday apparel, so it doesn't actually apply to like outdoor gear and professional gear, but there's no reason for you to need Teflon in your bra or even in your period panties where it's shown up. I don't know if you heard of the thing settlement. So there's some really good things around that. If you really care about this and you feel like you've been wronged in some way by purchasing things that end up being toxic, especially from a brand that purports to be sustainable and non-toxic, find a lawyer. There's a lot of lawyers right now who are looking at this and starting to lodge lawsuits against brands who are making false claims around their products being non-toxic and sustainable while having things. There are nonprofits that you can donate to, Toxic Free Future, this Center for Environmental Health in California. They're the reason why you might have heard about BPA being in various polyester spandex products. BPA, if you remember, is a hormone disrupting chemical that is very toxic and can lead to things like cancer and other hormonal related health issues. I think other things that people can do is be vocal to brands about wanting them to have a chemical management policy. Every brand should have a restricted substance list to start. If they don't, especially if they're like a children's brand or a maternity brand or anything like that, or a brand that purports to be sustainable, they should have some sort of chemical management policy. If they don't, you should tell them that you're going to take your business elsewhere. Alden, you're making an impact in such an interesting and important area of social impact. This is an issue that affects everyone. And it seems like certainly there's also issues of inequity and in where the clothes are being made and who's making them and so forth. And I think the approach that you've taken to addressing this issue is so interesting and unique. And I'm wondering if you could talk from a career perspective how did you figure out that this is what you wanted to do and this is how you wanted to make an impact? Yeah, so I've wanted to be a journalist since college. And I've also been a sort of mini environmentalist since I was little, actually. I started saying no to plastic bags in middle school because I read that we were about to hit peak oil and I knew the plastic was made from oil. And so like I would be in Claire's, which 
throwback great mall brand. <laughs> and I would be like, oh, no, thank you. I already have a bag. So I've been interested in this for a really long time. I think after college, I was writing for Huffington Post during its heyday, making cute animal slideshows tangentially related to sustainability. I had a blog and I ended up quitting my job writing about personal finance for women, which don't get me wrong, was a great job. I love writing about things that have a positive impact on people's lives and personal finance does. But I started Eco Cult in 2013 and it was a full lifestyle website, right? So I covered everything to do with sustainability. And one of those things was fashion, which not a lot of people were writing about at the time. Like nobody would take my pictures on it except for Refinery29. And then about a month later, Rana Plaza in Bangladesh collapsed. That's the factory complex where over 1,100 garment workers were killed. And suddenly people realized that it's not robots making our clothes, it's people. And there was this surge in interest. And so I continue to write a little bit about other topics like beauty products, a little bit about food, but because there wasn't really much out there that was really trustworthy, it ended up just taking over my entire site and being the thing that people were most interested in. And I love writing about fashion because it's not just clothing, it's everything. It's endlessly fascinating. You have international development and politics, you have chemistry, you have business, you have history. You have textile science. There's endless ways to look at the fashion industry and it, agriculture. It touches everything, human psychology, all of these different things. So I never get bored of writing about it. But the reason why I ended up writing this book about this topic was I just realized that it wasn't working to harangue people or guilt people about their purchases. I just wasn't seeing that have any impact. And the thing is that I know it's really hard to get people to care about things that they can't see and can't conceptualize. How much more is an organic cotton t-shirt worth to you when you don't know when, how much, or if any of that price premium you're paying is actually getting to the garment worker or the farmer. But how much is an organic cotton t-shirt that's certified toxin-free worth to you if when you put on something that is toxic, you get a breakout of hives. And so I wanted to really make that connection between what happens over there with garment workers and what happens to us over here. And as I found out, that connection is much, much stronger than a lot of people let on. And what's interesting is like, there's one thing to be writing about it and you started with a blog, et cetera. And there's another thing to make a career out of it. So how has that journey been in terms of you being a freelancer and eventually being able to work and build your own career in the social impact space as a writer? Yeah, it's not been easy for sure, as journalism has been in free fall since before I even graduated in 2009. And I was really fortunate to come up in the age when a lot of people were throwing money at media companies and media companies wanted to do a really good job. I had some really good editors and also I had my undergraduate degree in journalism. So I didn't have to take on student loans in order to get like a very expensive graduate degree. And then I learned on the job and all those different things. And I do feel like journalism is an impact job. I've seen the impact of some of the articles that I've written. I know that they've changed lives and changed the direction a little bit. Like they've nudged public policy and also they've nudged the conversation and changed the flow of money through the space in many different ways. It is a high impact job. Like most social impact jobs, it's very low pay. It's 
unfortunate that's the way the world works but i have to be really scrappy eco cult has financially supported me for a long time so that i have an the income so that i can take on investigations that go on for six months before i ever see a paycheck so that's been really helpful and i'm at a point right now where i'll hopefully booked as well but everything is still up in the air again in terms of digital media. Yeah, we're in a place right now where being a journalist who can affect the world in a really positive way requires compromises or sacrifices in other areas of your life as well. Like a lot of journalists I know are like 80% marketing, writing, and 20% straight journalism. And yeah, it's a really gratifying and satisfying and frustrating field to be in. It doesn't seem easy. And I can attest to being one of those people where EcoCult has changed my perception and my shopping decisions and even advocacy decisions on various aspects of my own personal lifestyle. So I appreciate all the work that you've done. And for those that might be interested in going down a freelancing or writing path, I think it is that balance where I think what you've done is you write for multiple types of publications, and then you've built out EcoCult as a business and being able to drive revenue through that. And what are some of the ways if someone is trying to balance that out of how outside of pitching and getting paid by large publications, kind of advice on starting your own writing business and what are ways in which to drive revenue? Like I said, everything's in flux right now. I think the conclusion that a lot of people have come to is that the only revenue driver right now that can really support a middle class income is subscriptions. I think EcoCult might switch to a subscription model, especially as we dive deeper into some of these topics around toxicity and health related to some of these things. But I say all that because what worked for me was a different time and it's not going to work for the next people. But I do say, I've said this to everybody throughout my career is that don't go work for yourself until you work for some other really smart people. It's really hard to go freelance before you have had some good editors or worked at some sort of publication that you can be proud of because first of all you need a network and cold pitching is really difficult i cold pitch and i still get crickets and you also just need to have somebody give you feedback on your work on a consistent basis it's really difficult to improve your work when you have piecemeal edits from this editor over here and that editor over there and they don't see the arc of your career and they're not investing in you. For any freelance, I would say go work for somebody, a human that you respect. I would say even more than a publication or a company that you respect, but both are good. And then once you feel like you're starting to coast a little bit and you could do this in your sleep or you get inevitably laid off because you're a journalist, <laughs> then you can go freelance and you'll have the contacts and you'll have the skills to do it. It's such good advice. And it's advice that we really try and get across to people is definitely get experience. Experience is going to help you no matter what, as well as those contacts. And yeah. I'm so curious because being a freelancer and being an entrepreneur, as we've discussed, can be really hard when it comes to the lifestyle, emotional aspects of it. Was there any advice or mentorship that you received that helped you sustain this as a career pathway for a really long time? Yeah. So I have a good friend, Laura Shin, who was my editor when I was at Best, the personal finance website. She now runs the most popular cryptocurrency podcast. And she's been a good friend throughout this. And she was my editor. She made my writing better. And now she's a friend. And then also my other editor, Mariana, who was also there and having their advice around me and helping me commiserating and also telling you whether you're being crazy, whether you're being ridiculous or whether or not you really should be annoyed about the way somebody's treating you or what you're hearing. That's super crucial when you're just working by yourself, right? Even 
a good friend who doesn't work in the same industry, they're not going to be as helpful as somebody who does, who could be like, oh, no, that's normal. Or no, that's ridiculous. But here's how to state your case without burning bridges. Like that sort of thing is really necessary. Having those people in your lives that can hold up a mirror and give you that feedback is hugely important. And as an extension of that, and you mentioned is that I think one of the tenants that we've really always thought about at Be Social Change is that if you really want to make a larger impact, you can't do it alone and you have to do it with and through in collaboration with other people. And that's really integral to your network. So how mm -hmm. has networking and building your network been integral to the growth of your career and EcoCult and the book and everything? Yeah, I have to say that I did a swerve that I think a lot of people did. And I think a lot of people are coming out of this fugue state where they were like pouring all of their time and resources into networking online and on social media networks. And I think it did help for a while. I think it was really helpful. I didn't really tap into that resource in a big way until like I was like, who wants to get a preview copy of my book? And people really came out of the woodwork on Twitter, but that was before Twitter crashed. And then Instagram is also becomes really not helpful. It doesn't drive traffic. I hate to say it because I wish it weren't so, but some of my best connections and opportunities have come from in-person serendipitous meetings actually in New York City. I have my book deal because I met a woman at a cocktail party of two friends that I met at a completely journalism and social impact unrelated event and connected with them. And that just being curious and meeting people and then cultivating those relationships with people, even just because you like them and not because you think they can do anything for you, I think is the best kind of networking that you can do because especially in a place like New York City, but I, this applies to all other cities. If you surround yourself with really curious, fascinating, kind people, you will find those connections that will help you. But in a way that feels like really organic and true to yourself. Don't do it the LA way where you're like talking to somebody as soon as you figure out whether they can help you, you make a decision on whether or not you want to be their friend. Like not the way we do in New York. And I really can't stress this enough that just being in person in New York and just meeting people and taking everybody as they are and making decisions about whether or not I want to stay connected with them based on like how they make me feel. That's been great for my mental health and as well as my career. And I think you nailed that single word, which is curiosity, both in terms mm -hmm. of surrounding yourself with those people, but also you being curious, which is one of the main skills that you can develop as a networker is that you're not talking at people, you're asking questions and being curious and making those authentic connections. I also think that what you're describing about like getting a book deal, most people think that the traditional way of getting a book deal or of getting a new job, which is like you go online, you send in an application, you send in a proposal and that's it. It's really important to understand the role that networking can play actually in accelerating those opportunities. So are you open to sharing a little bit more about the process of going about getting the book deal so that people can be inspired by your journey? Yeah. Again, it was a lot of serendipity. So the longer version is that my husband and I went to an event where somebody was DJing and they were like, hey, to my husband, can you bring us some extra equipment? So I went with him and then we met this couple there and then they invited us to their place for cocktails and then they had a party. And then I met this journalist, Georgia King. She's originally from Australia. She was working at Quartz at the time. Actually, I hadn't even told my husband. I had made a little list of places I wanted to write for and I had put it on my wall as like a personal inspiration. He noted that. And then when he met this woman at this party, he dragged me over to her because she was about to leave and was like, yo, this woman works for this place you want to write for. And so I like stopped her in the hallway and I was like, I'm a story idiot. I want to pitch it to you. And I bet you the story and she was like, okay. okay. And I ended up writing it for her. And then I wrote another piece for her. And then I wrote another piece for her that was like 
a couple pieces that were Quartz's like most viral pieces. And those were actually partnership because I would picture the story and she would like the story and workshop it and then get it through to the publication, get it approved, and then it would go viral. And then she ended up working for a book agency. And again, I was just like, congratulations. And then I posted on my private Instagram, which is just for my friends, that I was in the middle of the pandemic. We were at my cousin's place in Asheville, North Carolina. And I just posted and was like, if anybody wants to visit. And she was like, I want to visit. I want to <laughs> explore the South. And like on the car ride down, she was like, what is your book idea? And wow. yeah. And so you can see how my past Path led me here like it's a lot of luck right it's a lot of serendipity but it's also curiosity about being friends with people because you like them and not immediately trying to mine them for obviously like I pitched Georgia immediately upon meeting her but we respect each other so much and then she helped me with the pitch and everything she's the one who came up with the name to die for and landed it with an amazing publisher and here we are and I think the luck and the serendipity are integral, but I think all the things that you're talking about is also manufacturing luck and also accelerating that serendipity. And I think there's things that people can do to help accelerate that. And I think one of the things that you shared that's related to the mentorship and the networking is you talked about how important it was to your well-being. And I think as a freelancer or as an entrepreneur, business owner, or even like a job seeker, you can just be constantly just going and it never ends. And how do you balance out or what are the things that you do to create that balance of well-being and feeling good? Yeah, actually, just to your point about manufacturing luck, I do want to say that I knew what my story, my book idea was going to be when Georgia asked me, right? I knew what my story pitch was when I saw her. Like I work really hard so that when the opportunity presents itself, I have the confidence to take it. So yes, definitely some like manufacturing opportunities there for myself. But in terms of mental health balance and everything, I am part of an amazing community here in New York. It's incredibly diverse, creative, people of all income levels, all nationalities and races and everything. And I just don't talk about my work with them very often. Some of them, like it takes me a really long time to find out what they do because we're not there to promote ourselves. We're not posting on our Instagram, trying to get our friends to sign up for our coaching service. We're really taking each other as we are. And now that I've cultivated this community for probably five years now of people who play and hang together and support each other on when we're going through lows and when we're going through highs, a lot of them, they're like, oh, I pre-ordered your book. And I'm like, oh, you don't have to pre-order my book. You're just a dude. <laughs> who doesn't care about fashion and you seem healthy to me. I'm like, well, yeah, well, of course I would. But it's really nice to close my laptop at the end of the day after I've been writing about all these things and just leave it. And I find that some women, they know what I do. And so they come to me when they have a question about sustainable fashion, right? They post in the group chat and they say like, where should I donate my clothing? Or what's a good bathing suit company that's not Shein? And I'll share resources. But like, I don't bring my work into these spaces because first of all, I don't think it's helpful for them or for society to shame individuals for their purchasing decisions. So I just put it away and then I just go frolic and I have separate emails. I try not to work on the weekend unless I've taken time off during the week to do something unrelated to work and then I'll shift it. But I really try to keep these worlds separate and I don't promote to my friends. I don't guilt my friends unless somebody's asking or I think it would be really helpful for them to know some of the information that I could share with them. 
In what you're saying, I hear so many important themes, including authenticity and balance and doing your work and knowing that it's out there and not feeling like you have to push with all of your might, but rather like also doing what you need to take care of yourself and to invest in your own well-being. So it's an incredibly important (laughs) message for all of us to hear. And I really appreciate what you're saying. I'm so glad it resonates. Oh, so deeply. And I think it will with a lot of people. And I'm curious too, you're talking about balance, you're talking about not working on the weekends. And I'm wondering if there's any other creativity or productivity habits or routines or tools that you use that you might want to share. So in terms of work optimization, there's a few like little tools that I use on and off. I think just from a practical standpoint, I use a time tracker harvest to track all of my time. And I have a floor of how much money I want to make per hour for some of these set fee projects. So I know how much I need to charge or I know if I need to turn something down because it's not paying enough or I'm investing too much. I do this all the time. I always overinvest in stories because I want to do the best job possible, but I'm not getting paid enough for it. So it's really important for me to track my time. I use harvest for that, but you could use anything. I use a tomato timer. So like dings after 25 minutes and gives me a five minute break. So I get up, I stretch, I clear my head or I say, okay, done enough email for now. Let me move on to the next thing. So that's really helpful. What else do I do? I try to have a good workout routine. I try to stretch in the morning. I fast personally. My head's clear if I'm working, 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 and then I wait till lunch to have something. So those are like a lot of the typical productivity hacks that I do on a larger macro level. I think I have to have conversations. My husband, since the pandemic, has also worked from home a lot. He's an architect. And we have to have conversations with each other about not interrupting each other when we're working. Because when you get pulled out of the flow, it takes a really long time to get back into it. Especially like I could be deep into a story and like typing, 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 typing and like trying to put things together in my head. And he's like deep in blueprints, like drawing, drawing, drawing and like trying to put things together in his head. It's really helpful to have conversations with whoever you're living with around that. And also I had to have a serious talk with one of my best friends last week because he's lovely, but he would call me all the time just to have these casual talks. And finally I was like, dude, you know, like you're on salary and also on commission. So like you get paid whether or not you're working. If I don't work, I don't get paid. Like I have to work and then turn something in and then follow up to make sure I get paid. I know my schedule seems flexible, but it's actually less flexible than yours. I'm not taking two martini lunches with the clients like you do. I just need you to respect the boundaries I put around my work time. And like my work time is my work time. I have to have the same conversation every three months with my mom as well. You know, moms. (laughs) (laughs) This all feels very familiar, by the way, the setting the boundaries with your significant other. I just want to throw that out there. Or your roommates. If you have roommates, like it's also important. Absolutely. So this has been such a wonderful conversation, Aldana. Just one last question is, for those people that are just starting their career, or they're maybe even looking for a transition, is there any particular last career advice that you'd give, especially someone that's wanting to enter into a freelance role? Yes, I would say it helps to be in the place where everybody is. And I know the pandemic made it seem like you can work remotely from anywhere. And that's true, right? Like I have contributors to Ecocol. One is in Salt Lake City. One is in Phoenix. One used to be in Miami. And so that does make it easier. But in terms of like deep connections or like 
friendships, like even work friendships, like the ones I described, you need to be in the place. So if you can't afford to live in New York or San Francisco or wherever the people are that you want to be around, at least invest in some conferences. I was talking with a friend and colleague about an upcoming conference and I was looking at who's talking and I was like, I don't know, like, I don't think these are going to be very good talks. And she was like, oh, never about the talks, you know, more than most of the people who are presenting. She was like, it's about the networking. And I was like, you're right. I should go because even if you don't drink, like having some sort of beverage or dessert, like in between and afterwards with people and seeing people face to face, like Zoom will never replace it. Even email, text message, phone calls, perhaps to an extent, but like you really need to like have that down, relaxed, unformatted, unprogrammed time with somebody to get to know them and build up that relationship so that they think of you when they see opportunities or also so that you don't end up like butting heads over something dumb because you don't know each other. You don't know each other's personality. And like, you don't realize that the way they're saying it is just like the way they say things and has nothing to do with you. Oh, that's great advice. And I know that I can't wait to be in New York and get to spend more time with you soon. Yeah, absolutely. Such a great conversation. Thank you so much for all of your insights, all of your wisdom. And I cannot wait to read your book. Thanks again for writing it. And where, can, and where can people find you at? So people can find me at ecocult.com, E-C-O-C-U-L-T. They can also find all of my freelance work for places like New York Times and Wired at aldenwicker.com. And these days, my biggest social media presence is LinkedIn. So you can also find my musings there. Awesome. Thanks so much, Alden. And good luck with the book. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Alden is incredible. And her book To Die For is a must read. I'm looking differently at everything I'm wearing and touching right now. <laughs> Me too. And I'm so grateful for the foundational resources she's created to empower people in the sustainable fashion field. EcoCult is such an awesome resource for anyone who wants to learn more about your options in sustainable fashion. I'm pumped that Alden is doing the work she's doing in the world as an entrepreneur and freelancer and thinks she's such an amazing example of how to build your own path to social change. It's been another great conversation with you, Jen, and we look forward to seeing you all next week. See you all then. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you liked the episode, help us grow the impact of this podcast by taking a quick second to leave us a five-star rating and review telling us what you liked. And please share the podcast with anyone you think could benefit from this type of career and business advice. Word of mouth is the number one way we can grow the podcast and the impact we have on people's careers. And don't forget to visit besocialchange.com for free social impact career resources through our newsletter. See you next week.